HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. This week on Meet and 3, we get ready for Super Tuesday by looking at how food shapes elections both at home and abroad. People know that you don't order a Philly cheesesteak with Swiss cheese as John Kerry did back in the 2004 cycle. A young group of friends decided that they would put up a website which told voters which polling booths had sausages. Prime Minister David Cameron was pictured about a week after this incident eating a hot dog in a bun with a knife and fork because he was so afraid. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman in the area of food and where it intersects with culture. And today, I've taken an Uber out to Montecito in California to be at the ground zero for the most beautiful cookies with the most beautiful pressed flowers in them. My guest today is Lori Stern. Welcome, Lori. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, actually, because I'm sitting in your house. <laughs> oh, well, I'm happy to have you here. <laughs> One reason I'm so fascinated by your work is that you've combined two things that I love. You've combined cookies and nature. So can you tell me about the origin of this incredible business that you've created? Yes. Well, the first thing that I think about is uh, growing up in Ojai, California. It's a really small town nestled in the mountains in a valley, and there's lots of nature and a lot of free time for kids. There's not really much happening in the town. So I spent a lot of time outside. I could just call myself a nature girl. That, that's the type of girl that I am. So combining um, nature and cooking came natural to me. <laughs> so tell me more about Ojai, because I feel like you have so many great stories from when you were growing up. Yeah, we had a little garden at our house and my mom grew the most beautiful roses. I mean, her rose garden was stunning. And I was in charge of the cherry tomatoes. And I remember I was a little entrepreneur. I was like six. And I said, well, we should sell all these cherry tomatoes. We have so many. So I made a sign and we put them 
at the mailbox and there's always change in my little basket for people to leave money, but nobody ever took tomatoes. So I think my dad was just like emptying his pockets. (laughs) (laughs) No one ever took the tomatoes. (laughs) Is there anything that the entrepreneur that you are now looks back at that six-year-old and says, I had the gift. I just was in a (laughs) (laughs) cul-de-sac. I say, go girl. I was proud of myself as a six-year-old. I think that's cool. (laughs) And were you cooking as a little kid? Oh, yeah. I mean, by the time I was 10, I remember I cooked the entire Thanksgiving meal. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My mom would just check in on me every like hour or so. You have to tell me, like, why was that? You were a take charge type of person? I think so. And I think I just loved cooking. And I think my mom, I would cook with her a lot. And I think I got to the point where she just said, oh, okay, she can do it herself. <laughs> so I, I did it. <laughs> when you're growing up, you're also a fierce competitive tennis player, which you yeah. are to this day. Well, not as good as I used to be, but. <laughs> do you think that there's an intersection between the competitive perfectionism of being an athlete and doing the cooking and the baking that you do? Yes, I think so. I think that without much deep thought about it, the first thing that comes to mind is just a dedication to doing it right. So whether that's hitting 300 forehands to make sure you're you have the right form <laughs> or whether it's continuing cooking and trying out different recipes not giving up until I'm really happy with the end result and I think that sort of like persistence for what I'm passionate about came through in both so it does speak to that notion of persistence and just how hard you're willing to work yeah because when you were living in New York City you basically worked around the clock oh yeah I called that my culinary training. Um, I worked as a pastry chef. So at, where were you a pastry chef? At Bakery, Brooklyn. They have a location in Williamsburg and Greenpoint. I worked there for a little under two years and I'm still friends with Nina, the owner, and she's a huge inspiration to me in my life and my baking career. And what about the baking itself spoke to you? Well, in terms of cooking, I always was most attracted to baking. You know, I moved to New York originally to learn how to do those fancy cakes. So sugar, pastillage, flowers, and this and that. So, you know, I was like stalking Ron Ben Israel. I was like trying to work for everybody. And what's interesting is I worked for one gal. I can't even remember her name now, but her cakes sold for, you know, 30 to 40,000 each for a wedding cake. And I remember working for her for a week and noticing that the whole business was based on free labor because it's so intricate and these things take so long. Like one flower could it probably take 16 hours to make and you're relying on culinary students who need their internship hours. So immediately I said, this isn't for me. I don't want to rely on people for free labor. <laughs> so... I figured that out, and Ramba and Israel never call me back, and you know, it's <laughs> fine. But, but look, looking back at the time, I felt disappointed in myself that I couldn't get a job doing this, or I, I didn't like it. So then I bounced around. I worked at the White Hotel as a pastry chef. I worked at Milk Bar for a hot second. And all the while, every morning, I was having my coffee and my pastry at Bakery Brooklyn. And then it just hit me, like, why don't I try to get a job here? <laughs> And then I met Nina and I felt, I don't know if she would say this, but I felt there was an immediate connection. (laughs) (laughs) And then the rest was kind of history. So what were you making when you were at Bakery? Well, okay. So basically 
I mean, I would get there at 4.30 a.m. I would turn on the ovens. I would open up. I was the first person at the bakery. And then the first thing I would do was make the yeast dough. So that would be for the cinnamon rolls, the skolbrod, which is like a Norwegian pastry filled with custard. And then I would get three bowls and fill one with flour for biscuits and then one with uh, flour for the scones and then the third one with flour for the yeast dough. And I remember it was just like methodical how I would do things. But what was cool about Bakery is she would give you the base recipe, but she would let you go wild on any of the flavors. So we had creativity there. That seems to be so unusual, particularly for yeah. a neighborhood place where yes. people are coming back and right. you know, wanting the same, same thing. thing. Or, yeah, But you exactly. would be inspired by something different, perhaps. Yeah. And I've never experienced that in any other professional food environment. So... That wasn't your only job, though, because no. that was your yes. that was your four a.m. to ten a.m. job, right? Yeah, I mean, actually, four a.m. to like noon, one, and then I remember I would have my second iced coffee and then have like a biscuit on my way to either private chefing, like I worked under this agent, and she would send me to people's homes to cook for them, so I would do that, or I would do mostly weekends, but sometimes. During the week after the pastry, I would work at a fish market in um, Greenpoint. So it was like opposite. It was like fragrant, delicious pastries in the morning and then like stinky cold fish at night. (laughs) (laughs) But I had a crush on one of the fishmongers. So I think that's why I stuck at that job for a bit. And it was interesting. It was fun. And then, so you were in New York for about four years. And then did you come back to California after that? Yes. Then I came back to where we are here at this lovely property in Montecito. And what made you come back to California? Well, to be perfectly honest, I wasn't happy in New York. I was kind of depressed. It was not a good environment for me. The weather really affected me and I was working so much. I didn't really have a big social network. I was friends with my roommate. I was friends with some of the girls at the bakery, but you know, I was so tired. I couldn't really do anything at night. (laughs) So I didn't have much of a social life. And you know, I wasn't really making any money. I was barely getting by. It was just, just things were tough then for me. So I moved back to California to be closer to friends here. And uh, right when I got here, I started cooking for clients because that's what I did before I moved to New York. I was a private chef and caterer. And after living in New York, my skills just catapulted and I was just a much better chef. <laughs> what, did, what did you learn in, in New York that made you a better chef? Well, you know, I worked at so many different quick jobs, but I still learned a lot on the job. You know, even working at Milk Bar for four days, I still learned a lot. Just being around that food culture um, and then also private chefing, I learned so much of how to manage my time, how to clean, how to organize. I picked up really fast. And you say you got a, a late start because you started in food at 26? Yeah, like 27, actually. Yeah. And do you think that there might have been an advantage to starting at 27? Honestly, Dana, I look back and wish I started younger. Um, and what would what benefit would that have had? I mean, I have no clue, but I feel like where I am now in my business, I would have been there five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but who knows? And also, my business really was launched via Instagram. And, you know, it was just kind of the right time at the right place, creating beautiful cookies that photograph well. So how did the idea come to you? Like what, when was the first time that you created these cookies? 
Well, the first And there's time. more to you than cookies, to be, to be <sighs> fair to everybody who's listening, and I don't want to reduce you to cookies. Thank you, Dana. But you did well, start with cookies. They definitely were the thing that really stuck with people, I'd say, or interested people. But I remember I was uh, catering a party for a friend. She is a friend now, but at the time she was a client, and the party's theme was Georgia O'Keeffe Desert bloom. So all the food she wanted elements of like the desert or blooming like flowers. Um, That's a really good assignment. I it was really inspiring. I still call her my muse. That's shout out to Kyle DeWitty. Great <laughs> muse. There, One of my yeah. muses. Yeah. She wanted a bunch of desserts in addition to a bunch of food. Um, so I remember pitching the menu and I said, well, you know, what about, I want to make a prickly pear cactus pie. I want to do this. I wanted that. She said, great, great. And I said, how about, you know, some, some herb and flour pressure bread cookies. She's like, yeah, that sounds great. So I remember finding a recipe for shortbread, which I didn't have my own at the time. And um, all recipes that I find, I feel like most, not all, but most of them have too much sugar in them. So this recipe, I reduced the sugar by about a third. And then it was like, it was around 5 p.m. And I was here at this property. And um, down below, there's all these um, wild herbs, edible or, that I'm familiar with. I decided to put those on the cookies just um, nasturtium flowers and um, lavender and um, oxalis, like the sour yellow flowers. And uh, and then the pomegranate trees were dropping their petals. So I put on bright orange pomegranate <laughs> petals. And then I put on, I remember tarragon I had and thyme and rosemary. I just put made a bunch of different cookies with a bunch of different herbs. And after I baked them, uh, what really was interesting to me was that different flowers and herbs, some kept their brightness of their of the flower and others um, baked off a little bit dull. But they were still beautiful. But that's so interesting. It was so interesting. And yeah. were you thinking about the flavor at the time or were you thinking about the color and the shape? I was thinking about the flavor a little bit. Um, actually, you know what? I made those cookies um, an orange zest. So the base was just a shortbread with orange zest. Then I think I did a little lemon juice in there too. So it was a little citrusy. And then I was thinking about, you know, oh, rosemary. This this will taste a little more rosemary. Or, oh, this lavender bud, this is going to be strong. But yeah, I remember the, the lavender baked gray, the purple lavender. It's like a light green almost. And then the pomegranate petals is what really interested me because those stayed bright red. And then the nasturtium, which is a bright red flower, baked a little bit brown, like a little burgundy brown. And I just thought that was so cool. You know? And you liked the fact that some faded and oh, some yeah. maintained I their loved intensity. It. You loved it. Oh, yeah. Did you ever go back to figure out, like, why? I mean, is it water content or I think I mean, I haven't. I haven't found a scientist to discuss this with yet. <laughs> I want to one day. But, um, but I've just kind of come to my own conclusions about things. You know, I think it's, yeah, the, the amount of chlorophyll in a leaf or um, or maybe the health of that particular leaf or the stage in that herb's life. If it's at the beginning or at the end, you know, it's, it's like, it's all that stuff. It all matters. Okay, so you served the cookies and then what happened? And it, they were a huge hit. But I didn't care so much that they were a hit. I was just caring about going back into the kitchen and trying out more flowers and herbs and different things that I could 
press in because I was just excited to see. The next day, I think I, I think I made like four batches and I just, I spent all day just trying out different things, like pressing different, like I did like a mustard green, I did a kale. You make them, people love them. It's like, that's good. On to the next party. But in fact, you like kept going on this one thing. Yeah. It sounds like the 300 strokes of tennis, right? You're For sure. just going to go back at that. It really inspires me. And so did those cookies end up on Instagram? Yes, definitely. You know, I post a photo of, you know, this basket of oranges and then some rose petals and then the cookies and then the next batch of cookies and then the next, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It was a little little varied, but it blew up and people wanted to buy them. That was the result. What happened was um, this really cool DJ, Harley Vera Newton is her name, and she was getting married and wanted these cookies at her wedding. So I sent her a bunch for her wedding. She bought them and and the wedding was being featured on Vogue.com. So once it was featured on Vogue, then I started getting emails from people with Vogue email addresses like, hey, we want to order cookies, da-da-da, hi, my name is da-da-da. I was just like, oh, this is so cool. Okay, yeah. And, you know, looking back, I was so funny. I just, I had no idea how to package anything. I still don't really, but <laughs> that's a whole other How thing. did you package them? I mean, okay, see that box right there with the sides painted blue yes. and turquoise? Yeah. I would send 12 cookies in that box without any tissue paper or anything. And, and they arrived whole? It seems like that Oh, they be- didn't arrive whole. No, I had a couple total failures. and You've figured it out since then. I figured it, I hope. I'm working on getting custom packaging made, and I'm hoping to do it with new mushroom technology. <laughs> oh, so um, mushrooms instead of corn yes, or styrofoam yes. or whatever. So it like melts in, it's not just like compostable to where you would need to rotate it and oxygen in order for it to compost. Like this actually just composts. The mushroom decomposes. Yes. Okay. So then all the girls from Vogue started buying the, buying cookies, the cookies for different parties, this and that. And then Vogue reached out to me and said that, we're doing a, a new initiative. We're choosing 100 creatives from around the globe who are changing the landscape of culture as we see it. And we would like for you to be one of them. And we want to do video of you at your house. And I said, oh, my gosh. I was just like, of course, over the moon because Vogue is like the ultimate. And how the heck could I ever get into Vogue? I don't know. <laughs> so, but you did. I did. I've been in Vogue five times now. And from there, the business grew, but it seems yeah. like you didn't really have a plan. Oh, no, there's no plan. The plan was to just do what I like to do every day. Do you think that's a good plan for people? It depends how hard you're willing to work at what you like to do. Right, because you work incredibly hard. I, oh, yeah, harder than anyone I I know. But I think what's different is that the quote-unquote work that I do, I don't see it as work so much. I really like doing it. I still like making cookies. And I've made thousands, I mean, I don't even know how many. So how many cookies can you make in a day? <laughs> oh, I've cranked out 700 by myself in one day. Wow. <laughs> and what type of equipment This is without have? any serious machinery. No, so now I have more, more equipment and machines. But that one day, I just, it was a regular KitchenAid mixer. It was a rolling pin, several sheets of parchment, and a lot of flowers. Tell me about the sourcing of your flowers. Okay. Well, there is an incredible farmer nearby. Um, He has a plot of land in Carpinteria, which is 15 minutes away from where I live right now. And he has uh, uh, several acres in Ojai. I didn't know him growing up, 
but I knew his land growing up. And now I know him and we're friends. <laughs> and what's and his name? His name is BD, which stands for Bob Doubt. He's a lovely man and he's vegan and he's so sweet and he uh, he's a flower farmer. I mean, he also farms fruits and different citruses and, and the most incredible herbs you'll ever try. I mean, his mint is pristine. Let's dial back. So I know that you, you took some classes in plants and medicine? Yes. Tell me about those classes because I feel like that must be foundational to some of the yes. cooking that you're doing now. Yes. So growing up in Ojai, going back to that real quick, uh, we would go on nature walks and with you know our teachers, I, I went to a hippie dippy school for the first like eight years of my life. And I remember a teacher, TA or at Montessori would say, oh, this flower, you can eat this one. And, and I just thought that was so cool. Fast forward. Then uh, before I moved to New York for my culinary training, I was working as a pastry chef at the Ojai Valley Inn. And that was the beginning of my pastry career. And I also signed up for some adult ed classes for medicinal and edible plant classes. So we walk around on hikes in this area in Santa Barbara. There's so many different beautiful hikes. And uh, the professor would go through the different bushes and flowers and plants and talk about the native peoples of the land, what they would do with these plants and how they were used for ceremonies or how they were used as medicine or what the different properties of the plants were. And to me, that was just so interesting. And I mean, it still is just the notion of using plants as medicine. I'm still so into that. I think it's so cool because it was the original medicine. And knowing uh, what you now know about plants as medicine, what have you found works best for you? Like, is there anything that where you use a plant as medicine? Uh, all the time. Yeah. And it's not just these more obscure plants that are growing in the Santa Barbara Hills. It's kombucha squash. It's spinach. It's more basic ingredients that we know about. Like, I know how that works in my body. Do you feel connected to that, like the history of plants and medicine in what you're doing today? Yeah, 100%. I mean, me taking the classes started out that way, like just being interested and then also being interested in what is known as food to many cultures and what we see as a weed or what we see as like an invasive, ugly garden plant that we're going to pick. But actually that is an edible meal for people or so, it has been. You know? uh, where was your mind expanded in that? Like what was a weed that now you're like, that's delicious, like dandelion. Like that mallow, for example. Mallow. And what, what is mallow? Mallow is, uh, many people would say it's an invasive um, weed, <laughs> uh, but and the leaves can grow to be about this big and you can stuff them like dolmas. Huh. So like the, the size could, of a saucer yeah. and then you can stuff them like... You could stuff them, you could saute them, you can chop them up and use as like an herb similar to basil or what I like to do with them is esteem them also, or blend them up and use it as a base of a cracker. You know, also nettles, stinging nettles, extremely medicinal ingredient that some people would say are weeds because they sting you and they're, they grow like a weed. And So what do you do with um, stinging nettles? I know that you can make a stinging nettle tea. Um, well, I've made cakes with stinging nettles. I, I have biscuits in the freezer right now. And so. what does stinging nettles taste like? And what is their medicinal quality? Well, they're extremely healthy. I mean, there's so many. I can't even tell you. What <laughs> the, I mean, a lot of people say they're 
good for digestion. They're good for lung clearance. They're great liver detoxifiers. I mean, but ultimately they're dark green and they are very nutritious. And what I find really interesting about the plant is its content of chlorophyll. So it will really make something green when you use it. So if you bake it into a cake, your cake will turn green and it'll stay green. With that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from my extraordinary guest today, Lori Stern. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium to galas in the renovated Palm House and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Executive chef Sarah Flynn's unique menu includes modern dishes with global flavors with a focus on local and seasonal ingredients. Welcome back. You are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. And today we are taking a deep trip into the natural world with an extraordinary culinarian, Lori Stern. Lori, it's so much fun to be here and to have walked on this property with you. When you are looking for inspiration, you're surrounded by it here. Yeah. When you're walking through the gardens on this property, do you look at a flower and say, oh my gosh, what I need to do with that is fill in the blank or does it come a less direct way? Well, I think both. Recently I was making like a cinnamon roll, but instead of putting a cinnamon mixture, I decided to put macerated rose petals with rose water and sugar. That sounds delicious. They were divine. Where else do you draw inspiration from? I know that you draw inspiration from artists whose work you love. Yeah. So artists, for sure. Also, like a lot of my clients and the parties that they're hosting and the themes. Most recently around the holidays, I catered a um, Scandinavian Viking-themed party. I made a sea couterie platter, so instead of charcuterie. <laughs> right. so, so I pickled a bunch of um, mussels and whelk because there's a lot of whelk that the fishermen are catching right now. And I cured gravlocks with beets and dill and uh, black cod with butterfly blue pea flowers. And I mean, I just, I had the best time. <laughs> Caviar and I made all these crackers. And so I kind of put my spin on classic Scandinavian fare. Yeah. I love the <laughs> idea of you and a Viking. <laughs> just... I didn't dress up. I should have. Everyone else there looked amazing, but. Did they dress up like Vikings? Oh yeah. It was all out. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So we were talking about how you've done more than cookies because mm-hmm. I've seen you do some extraordinary cakes. And so you had been in New York and you wanted to do cakes. And yeah. sorry, Ron Ben Israel, you missed your opportunity <sighs> because Ron, now, come on. Because now you're doing <laughs> unbelievable cakes. So tell me about the cakes and the flowers. Are there real flowers on the cakes? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're all pressing in my books or in the next room over right now. <laughs> a lot of the flowers that I use. 
but I taught myself how to make tiered cakes and it's definitely a whole process. It's like building something. <laughs> and um, I just taught myself watching YouTube videos, how to do those. Uh, another choice aside from cooking school. <laughs> yeah. But it was at a time in my early 20s and some of my friends were starting to get married. So I made a lot of my friends' wedding cakes for my first couple of years of cake making. Even then, were the, did those cakes have flowers as decoration? So, well, in those days, yeah, I was decorating with flowers, but I wasn't pressing them or I wasn't changing their nature at all. I was just using fresh flowers, but all edible from the farmer's market. Maybe you're not going to just take a bite out of a rose, but... You could. <laughs> Has yeah. anything scary ever happened to you? Like someone ate something and it didn't agree with them? Knock on wood, no. I, I've had a lot of scary cake delivery issues, like driving up a mountain with a huge wedding cake in my trunk and it's like 110 degrees. I mean, yeah, I've had some. Did that make it? Did fails. it make it? Uh, it slipped out of the box in front of the bride's <gasps> mom. And then the wedding coordinator just distracted the mom and. I brought a ton of backup because I knew it was a long way away and it was scary. And anyway, it everything turned out great. But there was that some moment. To do. So tell me about the pressing of the flowers. So if I opened books in your house, would I find flowers between all kinds of pages? Yeah, you definitely would. Um, discovered techniques of how to press different flowers wow. so they look the sweetest. And what are those techniques? Like, do you? Well, they differ for each flower, right. I'd say. But making sure that the head of the flower is perfect when you shut the book, and knowing when to put twenty pounds of books on top of what flowers. So, <laughs> like, this is a thicker flower. This needs a heavier press. And I'm still old school. I'm still pressing them all between books. But apparently, there's microwavable presses where you could press flowers in microwaves, in a um, press that you heat up in the microwave. I don't even have a microwave, so I don't know. I haven't tried that yet. I should probably look into that with how many flowers. <laughs> I don't know. It's, this is, it's so beautiful this way. Thank you. And, you know, and, and the pressing the flowers is similar to the cookies in that I don't know exactly how they're going to turn out until after I take them out of the books, just like wow. when I after I take the cookies out of the oven, you know, so... Your family is fascinating with like musicians and yeah. tell me what it was like growing up and what, what were your parents doing when you were growing up? Well, my family, like probably most everyone's is definitely interesting, <laughs> colorful. My parents were 34 years apart in age. So when they met, my dad was 58, my mom was 24 and they met playing tennis, which is pretty cute. So when I was born, my dad was retired and he's a musician, and he played in numerous different symphonies as a uh, clarinetist. And his brother, my uncle, was a concert pianist, and he was incredible. So we grew, grew up with a lot of music. And do you feel like there's like a rhythm to the to the baking and the work that you do that is like a, a rhythm that comes through Definitely. that family music? Yeah, I also think there's like a soul. There's like something soulful about it and that sort of art of life. Did you f have a sense of their philosophy, like how they thought about life? Yeah, I mean, I think I learned that as I started getting older. But looking back, 
I mean, for sure, it was to enjoy yourself and to appreciate the art, whether it's music or good food or a painting. You know, there's a lot of art in my house growing up. Or My mom was a great gardener, so we also had a lot of indoor plants. So, yeah, I think that it's um, like the simple things in life, like just really enjoying those things. I think it helps me understand some of the the simplicity and the strength of the work that you do because you could take all the pressed flowers and you could do something chaotic. But in in fact, what you've chosen to do is a shortbread, which is the simplest of the simple cookies, and then these beautiful pressed flowers, which are very old-fashioned but do themselves have a lot of soul. And as they're as they're pressed and they age, they actually have like more character. Yeah. And so I feel like that's very much along the lines of what you're saying about your family. Yeah, for sure. Well, and also just I press all of these flowers in books that matter to me. It's not like I just have like stacks of books I don't care about. Like I really care about the books I have. So <laughs> in some weird way, I feel like it imparts some sort of, I don't know if you want to call it like energy or whatever it is. It, I think it imparts some sort of like magic. So yeah. what are some of the books that are pressing your flowers? Well, right now it's a huge cookbook collection and then some poetry books. Yeah. So <laughs> I was intrigued by some of the, the things that you've done that aren't like flowers pressed on cookies, like mushrooms. Oh. You just incredible. It felt like a mushroom experiment. Mm, um, it was. So <laughs> tell me about the, the mushrooms. Yeah. Well, I took the idea of pressing something into a baked good and took it to the savory realm <laughs> with, with the mushrooms. So what I did was I infused just a savory shortbread dough with um, butter, flour, Parmesan cheese, salt and pepper, an egg. And then I put some medicinal mushrooms in there. You can buy those everywhere right now, like reishi and chaga. And it's just dried mushrooms ground up into a powder that a lot of people use for drinks and very big in California right now. I don't know about New York, but... Big, big, big. Okay, good. So so I infused a magic mushroom blend into the flour, and then, um, and then I added a little bit of raw cacao to make the dough a little darker because I wanted it to stand out against the more pale mushrooms. Um, and then I just sliced the mushrooms, and then I just had fun and decorated and pressed them in and then baked them. And They're so, so beautiful. And also, I mean, because you showed the process and the yeah. process was also was talking about cool. magical mushrooms, but it seemed pretty magical. It was really fun. And I mean, there's so many cookies that I want to make. I mean, the, my next one is going to be grated up raw carrots decorated with carrot tops. So that's probably going to be in March for like, you know, the a bunny theme. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good for Easter. So if people want to play around with these things, because listening to you, I'm like, I am so inspired. I'm like, I want to go dehydrate some strawberries and then pulverize them and then yes, turn them into cookies with <laughs> lemon drops. But are there rules that people should pay attention to? Like anything to know about if they're going to take this on on their own? Well, I, I mean, in terms of eating flowers, you know, don't be stupid. Don't just go on the side of the road and eat whatever. You know, there's a lot of flowers out there that you shouldn't eat. To be honest, there's only, I would, I think about 15 poisonous flowers that could kill you. Otherwise, all the other flowers that are quote unquote, not edible could just 
make you have a, like a little tummy ache or something like that. But for the most part, flowers like herbs, they're vegetation. And uh, what I find also really interesting is the history of flowers that they were used as an ingredient back in the day before the agricultural revolution. A lot of people would use uh, marigold flowers like they use garlic right now. That's extremely interesting to me. It reminds me of when Renee Redzepi really rocked my world going and eating at Noma because all these things that I'd never, ever had thought of as food were suddenly on my plate. And it made me ask the question, like, why is rosemary food, but pine needles aren't? Same. <laughs> and so you begin to look at the world in a completely different way and just yeah. say, who made these rules that say that this is food and this isn't food? And who popularized it? And we have such an opportunity now to try things, taste things. And it's not about being popular or not. It's just, why are we ignoring so much of the plant and animal kingdom and denying ourselves things that are beautiful and delicious? Yeah, that would also help our planet by eating invasive weeds rather than shipping bok choy from Thailand (laughs) when they have the same nutritional value, right? Or acorns, how it's a process to turn them into flour, but there's such a surplus of acorns. So, um, Laurie, I love doing a speed round, and I'd love to do a speed round with you on your favorite edibles in the garden and what to do with them. Okay, Dana. Well, there's a lot, but I'll break it down to the ones that first um, pop into my mind right now. Great. And they're, they're relevant in different seasons. I love pomegranate petals because they drop from the fruit Naturally, you don't have to pick them, so you can gather them from the ground, and they bake bright, bright red, and they're just nice and tart, like a pomegranate seed. Uh, I love bachelor buttons because of their dark blue color and how they can press as stars. I love kefir lime leaves because of their scent and how they can transform a dish, just one. I also love daisies. They're so sweet, and they're edible. Um... They look so cute when you press them and when you put them on cookies. On the daisy note, feverfew is another highly medicinal and popular tea, I'd say. But um, the flowers look like daisies and they bake beautifully and um, they offer a nice bitter aroma and taste to the cookie. Is there any fear of burning like the petals in the heat of the oven? Or It sometimes happens. Yeah, but... But it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty too, you know? I love that. At the end of each show, I ask my guests to tell me something that is better than the hype. <laughs> People bringing back edible flowers as an ingredient as they once were, rather than as a way to decorate a dish. The flowers are actually offering a texture, a flavor, rather than just an afterthought of like a little sprinkle decoration. And they're kind of free. Oh, they're very free. <laughs> and a lot of them grow like weeds. I end each show asking my guests to give a shout out to a woman in hospitality who they really admire and who's inspired them. Who would you give a shout out to? Well, I think that that would be the owner of Bakery Brooklyn, Nina Bronmo is her name. She's extremely strong and inspiring and just a badass with really inspiring, cool values. She requests hard work from her employees, but she also gives a lot of freedom for creativity, which I think 
intern makes you as an employee want to keep working for her and keep wanting work there. Her core values don't seem to be all about money and making more money seems to be about providing a service to her community, which I find inspiring. Thank you so much for joining me or letting me join you in your wonderful house amid this beautiful garden in this beautiful state of California. And thank you all of you for listening. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of Speaking Broadly with an inspiring woman at its center. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.